Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Ted Pulsifer, CRO at MarketCube. Established in 2008, MarketCube is an online sample survey and research company based in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Prior to joining MarketCube, Ted has served in leadership roles at both Dynata and Lucid. Additionally, he has invested in a craft brew firm and is a purveyor of fine art. Ted, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by SurveyMonkey. Today, almost everyone has taken a survey, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel and research services, SurveyMonkey has launched a fast and easy way to collect market feedback. They have seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customized methodologies, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your ideas from your target market in a presentation-ready format. And by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, visit surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. Mention the Happy Market Research podcast to the SurveyMonkey sales team before June 30th for a discount off your first project. So fine art, how did you get into that? <laughs> That's a funny story. So sometimes it, it helps uh, who you know is better than what you know. I have a, uh, a good friend of mine from college that was doing some art collection as part of his uh, estate process. And he asked me to be on the board of a company that dealt specifically in buying and collecting and storing art based on some different taxation situations with art. So I got a, a crash course and I, I try to say yes to, to most exciting opportunities to take me out of my comfort zone. And that was certainly one of them. So yeah, I bet. What was the one thing you learned going through that process? Just how unbelievably extensive valuations can be for art and how it has such an unbelievable emotional impact on people where they'll see something and say, okay, that Kandinsky, that's unbelievable. That's worth $300,000 in my mind or a million dollars. And that's totally clear. And other people will see things and find no value to it and think it's a joke. And so just the, obviously the subjective art side of valuing paintings and sculptures is one thing. But what I thought was so interesting was just kind of the emotional side of the viewer, the observer, and how that runs the gamut so dramatically, unlike anything else, really. Um, I mean, even if, you know, before that, I, I spent some time in fine wine and even people that don't necessarily love wine. I mean, you could pour them a $200 bottle next to a bottle of something that's, you know, cost $4 from Yellowtail, and they can certainly taste the difference in finish in texture and complexity and alcohol burn. So, you, you know, like most things, the novice can at least appreciate the differences. And art was something that I got to see that everybody runs the spectrum on. So that, that part about it made it pretty exciting. That's funny. Was, was loss aversion a big part of the valuation? You know, not as much. I mean, what was so interesting was just sort of the financing and the shipping. And I, I think it's like a lot of things until you have somebody that you know that works in an industry, you don't really realize all the components of it. You know, so for example, just all the factors of storage, shipping, insurance, I mean, th those cottage industries on top of cottage industries that exist that when you kind of take time to, to stop and think out in your mind uh, makes sense. But in a knee-jerk reaction, you, you know, you ever sit next to somebody interesting on a plane, you think, oh, I had no idea 
that that exists. So that was the the biggest part of it was just realizing how many sub industries support that. But um, but yeah, it was fun. All right, great. Well, let's get started with our opening question. Tell us a little bit about your parents sure. and how uh, did they inform your current career? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in Southern Maine, so I'm a New England transplant. In fact, uh, living here in Charleston, I'm what's called a damn Yankee. So a Yankee is somebody that visits the South and then goes home, you know, spends their tourist dollars, has a vacation and goes home. And a damn Yankee is somebody that marries a Southern person and stays. So so that's my, my first introduction is, is I'm a damn Yankee now by trade, <laughs> by title, uh, which I guess I'm proud to have. So um, yeah, I grew up in Southern Maine and, and really both my parents um, had careers and passions in construction and art and things that are, are not necessarily my immediate skill set, but gave me a great appreciation for where I am today. So my dad owned a wooden shipbuilding business and built wooden boats by hand. So growing up, I spent a lot of time around tools in the woods, certainly lots of times very passionate about time on the water, being in the ocean, but also just doing lots with wood. I mean, we literally heated our house off of firewood. So, you know, regular chores for me, stacking wood, that sort of thing. And um, I don't know, I guess that sort of helped my career in that not necessarily do people wake up and say, I can't wait to spend two hours stacking wood today. But it's also a very healthy process because I found that in most jobs, especially in sales, you know, there's that two or three or four hours a day of stacking wood, right. whatever that may be in your vertical that you just have to do that if you learn to not necessarily enjoy, but appreciate it, do it faster and better. Things like that have, have helped me uh, a lot. I have an entrepreneur friend. He started a pest control business and it's done really, really well, like stupidly well. <laughs> and I asked him one time, I said, you know, what, what, how are you winning when all these other companies, it's a lot of them even bigger, you know, are, are struggling. And he said, I just do the shit that nobody else wants to do. Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly, that's exactly the core. They're giving this also a uh, shout out to my friend, Ron Francella. I talked to him before he was in the market research industry, actually had a successful sales career. And he said his minimum number of cold calls was, I believe it was 50 a day. That's, that's wow. hard to deal with that kind of rejection. It's hard and it's it also takes a really high amount of self-discipline. So, you know, I, I just I have a special place in my heart for people that have jobs that will not do themselves when you're gone. So, for example, and I'll put myself in that bucket now. I mean, I can have business travel or vacation and put an out of office on and largely things will get done and processed without me being there. However, if you are building a boat or you are, you know, doing pest control or doing service or something, you have to be there. It takes on this whole different importance. And so things like, you know, making that number of cold calls, taking on the work that people don't want to do, it's pretty valiant, but it requires a high amount of self-discipline to to do that. Yeah, it totally does. An interesting point that you're making, because I heard a keynote by a president of a famous college. And so in the keynote, he said that you will probably never hear me, obviously not see me again in your lives at his, this was a graduation talk. And, but it just goes to show you how truly important my role is in context of the people that serve you lunch, which if they weren't here just one day, then you would know they were gone immediately. And hmm. right, so I thought it was kind of interesting how he kind of like changed the value prop of kind of the roles and the people that keep mo things moving on a day-to-day -day basis for an organization versus kind of the executive. Obviously you need both. I'm not saying you don't, but but it was I thought that was kind of a, a nice humble perspective from his part. All right. So let's let's shift gears. Sure. 
What is the role of insights in a modern brand and how has that changed in the last five years? Yeah, I love this question and and I'd largely, you know, love to see some of our corporate clients kind of how they answer this, but in just some of the conversations that I have with them, you know, I think for years people have heard that, you know, budgets are tight and there's fewer folks on an insight staff to do work that maybe 4 to 5 years ago there might have been a large staff where, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that some of our corporate clients and even agency clients that used to do a lot of things themselves have started to outsource more and more of that to trusted partners. So I think on the one hand, you know, it's great for companies like MarketCube because we will, instead of just saying, hey, here's a sample for a thousand completes, we'll actually be able to help them, you know, create the questionnaire, program it, do tabs and do do just kind of a larger part of the research, which makes you, you know, obviously it kind of typically leads to a larger sale, but more importantly, you're more of an integrated partner. And so it's interesting, like our largest clients, I'd say, are more kind of partners where I feel like when I call them, we're back and forth on how we're going to design a questionnaire, how we're going to go about slicing the data, how we're going to look at sample sizing and, you know, really from the quantitative side. So I think while they have smaller teams, they're pushing more and more out to partners and they're able to spend more and more time on the insights, right? And so so that's, I think, one of the really interesting things I'd say for us, I've seen that really from 2018 on. Some of our most sophisticated clients are, are able to pass stuff off. And that's a difficult thing to do because if you spend your career, you know, in insights and your career working in brands, you know, it's really hard to let go of some of those pieces and processes. But I find that as more and more folks are forced to do that, they actually free up time and they can take those findings outside of the boardroom and deal with more stakeholders within their organization. So certainly, you know, I think I mentioned this uh, on the panel that we did together in San Francisco. We don't have clients that are coming to us saying, you know, we're going to be doing less research or less demand. They might have budgets that are tighter on the brand side, but they're actually the volume of work that they're requesting seems to be doubling or tripling uh, on the regular. So I think that part's really, really exciting. So when you think about the the increase in spend, or rather velocity, research velocity, mm-hmm. maybe not absolute spend, where's the growth coming from? And are you seeing a shift in spend from one area to another area? Yeah. So full disclosure, my answer is probably more limited, limited to the quantitative side. Um, I, I really can't speak too much about changes in qual and other aspects, but I think overall in the last five to six years, there's just been a much larger comfort with the word survey, where it used to seem like it was this process and only certain people did it. I mean, now as a consumer, I mean, I I can't walk off my flight or check out of my hotel or leave the car dealership or anything without getting three or four survey requests on my experience and everything. And even, you know, a great experience as I stayed at a hotel with my wife for our anniversary a couple of years ago. And we had one teeny tiny issue with I don't know, room service being late or something. And the head of room service called me back and invited me back to the hotel and dinner on us. And, you know, of course, I'll never forget that. That was incredible. And so even though that's kind of primary research and research of the customer, I think that making the whole population more comfortable with surveys helps market research have a broader base of survey respondents. And so I think just kind of a general comfort level and a broader acceptance of surveys from the quantitative side, I feel like that's driving adoption. Whereas, you know, years ago, potential business unit leaders and agencies would say, okay, we'll survey these people, we'll ask them this and that's it. Now it's just, there's such a a proliferation of surveys being done that it seems to be a more accepted topic. 
It really is the heyday of surveys, isn't it? For sure. It's crazy. I just got my windows tinted on my with this little like corner. You know, what I mean, it's on it's on this like not great area, and I got a survey. <laughs> I got a yeah. survey request, yeah. basic MPS type survey request out of their CRM. So you know, it's just connected to their POS. I can't remember the, what it was, but it was a. It just really struck me as amazing that you know you think about relatively unsophisticated SMBs that are mm-hmm. now employing surveys and presumably using that data in some way to help create better experiences for customers. I do think with the proliferation of like social media and apps and just so much more communication available to consumers now, certainly that's not new, but if you look in aggregate, you know, there's certainly way more things to do on your phone now than there was 15 years ago. And I know that's a large period of time, but the fact is that Technology, not just in you know market research, but technology in the cellular networks, in telephones, you know, on apps, on smartphones, has really made this easier to do. And so, for example, like 15 years ago, a window tinting company would have a hell of a time doing a survey, or you would get a cold call from somebody and probably hang up or be too busy. Now, you know, I think that just technology begets technology, and it's been a, a rising tide, I think, for all things survey and all things data collection. So the the way that we get people to take surveys is interesting, right? You have like direct email, such as my window tinting example or my Amazon purchase or what have you. And then you have sometimes, you know, intercepts that you'll see online. Sure. The other way is text messages. Right. So do you think there's going to be a growth in that methodology or that approach to getting people to provide feedback? Yeah, I do. But I kind of will pause with that and, and say that. So, so I think one of the advantages is it's simple and it's short. But it is very difficult to have a conversational deep dive into understanding things in a deep, meaningful way by text message. So where I see it's doing the most impact is we have a you know a huge office in Delhi, India. We do a bulk of our operations work out of there. And our panel and our sample delivery in India is one of the fastest growing parts of our business. And part of that is because just from a cellular infrastructure, you know, that more and more parts of rural India, rural Asia, rural Africa are coming online and cell phone research is booming in those areas. So while those are emerging economies, it's very important to get insights from that group is that's really going to be the future of the global economy over the next 10 to 15 years, in my opinion, of course, but obviously it's undeniable when you look at the population. You know, I think that that will change. I guess the thing that I wrestle with is you might be able to figure out you know, how was your window tinting experience? Or did you like the movie? Would you come back? But those are really short, interest, you know, short, tiny bits of information that are not necessarily life-changing to researchers. So I still see that, you know, obviously we'd like surveys to be shorter and all that. But I mean, we see kind of the average survey that we're doing, you know, closer to that 10-minute mark versus the two-minute mark. And so in that process, you're asking a lot of information and you have so many cool things in survey platforms as far as grids and pictures and videos. So if you just move to a text-based system, I fear that you're leaving a lot of that valuable data on the sideline. But uh, certainly there's there's others that specialize in that mobile arena that are more qualified to answer than I am. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you're, it's, it's an interesting point that you know SMS has a spot. It's very much like the right tool for the right job. Right. So in the given your point of view with respect to the evolution of surveys, I mean, you guys have been in the industry a long time. I mean, really, since it started hitting scale at 2008. So, you know, mobile adoption, et cetera. Are you, have you seen any trends at a macro level on survey design? You'd mentioned an average survey looking something like 10 minutes. 
Is that less, more? Yeah, it's a good question. I think from a survey design standpoint, the short answer for me is just better and better and better. So we we do a lot of work with Focus Vision. We do a lot of work with a lot of different programming tools, for example. But that's just one that we a lot of our customers use that we spend a lot of time in. And every quarter, every month, we're seeing more and more features that, you know, frankly, they don't seem like a big deal now. But five years ago, it was a really difficult thing to do. With respect to survey design, the more we can embed and do rich media where appropriate, the better it is. So uh, I guess this doesn't answer your question directly, but we have a few clients that tend to do a lot of work where the surveys in terms of runtime are long, but they have some really interesting video applications that go on in them and the drop rate is very, very low. And so what we get from that is that, you know, and this is our respondent base, I can't speak for, you know, the global sample pool, but our respondents are saying that they don't mind that it's long as long as what they're doing is interesting and they love watching rich media. They love it when it feels more interactive and it's fun. So that's a little of a different slice than say pure gamification. But I'm finding that the more the surveys can be designed to be interactive and have a media uh, component, the better that it is for our respondents. I think that, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily shorten it, but a lot of components of survey design where you can ask a question and do some visual mapping and stuff, if that shortens it 20, 30 seconds versus grids, eliminating grids or minimizing the use of grids, I mean, all those sort of best practices, we've seen help a lot. Yeah, grids are the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, researchers. It's always, a, it's always a bad outcome when you, I see it. On a, on, and for me personally, taking a survey, if I see the wall of yeah. grid, I'm kind of like, oh, fenced out, don't care anymore. Well, let me let me counter with maybe they're not the devil, but more than one or two can be very devilish. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, gosh, I literally was just taking a survey this morning and there was, I don't even know how many answer choices on this grid. At least I had to scroll and it was on my phone, of course. And, uh, you know, it's a 10 point scale, 11 point scale. Um, I'm, I'm kind of going through it and I'm reading the answer choices, of course because I'm trying to answer the survey, I actually care about the brand that's asking me sure. the information. And I'm like, what are you tactically going to do this different if, <laughs> you know, based on this answer, based on this answer choice? I'm sure the researchers had thought about that. But anyway, I always kind of like try and get it down to what at the end of the day, the data needs to be driving some sort of actual business outcome. Absolutely. Market research has gone through a lot of transitions. I mean, you know, the, the, your example of our time spent on mobile over the last 15 years, it's literally even affecting our bone structure, right? I'm sure you saw that report about a couple months ago where Generation Z is developing these like bone spurs or horns in the back of their neck because they're staring down more mm -hmm. than every, everything else. Are you, are you, and I know that your, fo your business is focused in online survey data collection, quant. Are you seeing things or hearing things around VR, AR, or maybe even uh, more right now, natural language processing? I mean, part of the power of online surveys is that you can you do gather vast amount of open-ended data. Right. Is that something that is increasing or gaining attention among your customers? Yeah, so I think with our customers, Largely, that's a what's new, let me take note. And so I feel like conferences are a phenomenal way for our customers to go out there and see 
you know, sort of what is new that may pertain to their business and really help them change the way they're doing things. I mean, we don't typically have a large role in that part of the data collection cycle. Although I will say this, I mean, I I don't go to every single one, but I, I do attend probably five to seven conferences a year globally, maybe more. Uh, and I've gone to a lot of them for you know six, seven, eight years in a row now. And and it what one of the things that I noticed anecdotally at, at you know TMRE and and certainly at the last Quarks event I was at was that just the number of new software VR data processing booths and companies that I frankly don't recognize, you know, that are newer. And I think, wow, what are these guys doing? So I'd say that's definitely new. But let me back up to the mobile point. And, and I'd say one of the things that I've seen is that from some reports I've read, from looking and trying to understand the 5G market is that we are just at the beginning, uh, even though it seems like, wow, mobile's different and there's apps and all this stuff. Well, if you go back and you kind of examine the history of the network and how you know the fourth generation of mobile and mobile power technology allowed cell phone users to have enough data where you could actually do web-based activities on a phone and then apps came to be and now we're in the staring at 5G that's going to be rolling out soon and once the 5G network is out then the devices need to catch up but as they do and you start to have you know really tight speed outside in the city not being on a Wi-Fi network really mobile enabled devices, I think it hasn't even started yet. So you could picture things like holograms on phones, VR taking off. So maybe the way that, and that's one of the things that's kind of scary, but also pretty exciting is in not, in not too distant of a future, three to four years out, 2023, 2025, I don't know exactly, but you're going to start to see your cell phone doing even more things than it is now in a very scalable way in a way that you know we haven't even scratched the surface of and and that's what's really exciting is to figure out not just in a daily life as a consumer or as a retailer but you know from the market research standpoint what applications can come from that so i'll, I'll flip it back to you and, and pretend i'm the host for a second i mean how do you think that would impact the uh the qualitative environment alone so i would not spend money on a booth if i had a vr or ar market research or consumer insights or UX, whatever, centric product. I feel like the time is just not right now. It's mm. too, too early. Where, where I think there's a lot of waste in the market research space is in the um, open ends. So when you look, especially in context of surveys, so, you know, so I'm talking quant here, not qual. Sure. Qual does a good job of kind of like understanding that that's important and we process it, but because you don't have the larger insizes or the total number of people taking the uh, surveys to be reflective population, then it's sort of like discounted, right? It's not quantifiable. What's interesting about online surveys is they really could operate as a surrogate conversation at scale. And I think that opportunity is, I've still not really seen anybody capitalize on. Uh, I'm sure there are companies that are, I know there are companies that are, are doing it, but I haven't seen people like put a flag in the ground right as this sort of like added value piece into their to their platform or their service again centric to online surveys and you know a lot of a lot of you know I've, I've been doing this obviously for a while so you know back in the day you would take a subset of the total number of open ends for each question right and then you know you would code those and that would be your answers but but now with natural language processing and sentiment analysis you actually have an opportunity to get a lot more information. Now, it also starts beginning the question of how good are the open ends, right? So right. now all of a sudden you start thinking a lot more about the quality of the respondents, which I think then leads to 
the next trend that I think we're going to see and I'm, I'm seeing now, which is more of a blended methodology for recruiting. So using existing managed communities slash, you know, maybe some of the networks out there and then supplementing that sample with other, whether it's user lists, you know, customer lists or social recruiting, right? Just as sort of this added kind of baseline of non-professional respondents. So I think there's a I think there's a lot of value that exists that uh, opportunity to capitalize on inside of the surveys that are beyond just the, you know, ratings questions or what have you, the Likert right. scales. And I and I think whoever winds up cracking that nut in a material way so it becomes easy to use, then let me, let me actually just give you a, a little bit more context. So if you're a researcher and you're presenting your results to your customer, what if as you're going through that process, right? What if you gave everybody a five, you know, broke them up into teams of two or, or individually and gave them five open ends that they would then code, right? The open ends create this really unique connection to the ones and zeros inside of the quantified question format. Sure. So I think there's this like engagement opportunity that exists as one thing. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is that sort of like humanization or deeper insight that can be, or getting into the why more, which again, starts sort of feeding the overall questionnaire design and, and sample frame. Well, it's interesting. So as I hear you say that, I'm thinking in the back of my mind that we've used as an industry, and I guess I'm qual for sure, but I can speak a little more intelligently to quant. You know, we've used a lot of different technological innovations to make the job of sampling easier. You know, so we need less humans to launch emails to monitor, you know, email open rates. And a lot of those things are automated now, obviously, and that's great. But the one thing that seems pretty constant to me is this market research space is definitely a blend of art and science and that there's always going to be the need for these very, very smart market researchers to use these tools and interpret what they mean. I mean, I've yet to see one device that I think will eliminate the market researcher that could do all this data collection and then deliver all the insights and say what it means. There's, there just seems like there's going to be this ongoing need for the human connection and the human interpretation and the skilled, basically the skilled hands of market researchers to interpret this and, and make these suggestions, these decisions. I think that's what makes it a pretty exciting time, not just for the the survey space, but also for market researchers in general that are considering entering the field. Oh, God, I totally agree. I mean, the less that we can focus on the operational considerations, then the more time that we have to spend on the analytics and implementation of the research, right? So, like, proportionally, I've not seen the statistic, and I probably never will, but it would be fascinating. If you could give me a pie chart, and you could show me how much time is spent at, I'll pick on the agency, let's say Ipsos, how right. much time is spent at Ipsos on a project for the different pieces of it, right? I'm hypothesizing, but like the majority of the time is usually in the operational consideration of the research, not in the engagement of the insights in the organization, right? And so that's right. the, to your point, none of that is automatable. There's, you just have to be creative with, you know, what those kinds of workshops or, or what have you, you know, look like so that you can empower the insight across the organization to affect change, which is really how you drive the ROI, right? So yeah, I agree. I, I think we're a long ways away from being out of a job because of a machine. I thought that was funny when people were first talking about it. And I think it's funnier now, right? There's no way you can but, but automate at the same time, you know, I, I can see why that would be a fearful moment for people, because if most of your career, you know, if you're a 20 year market researcher, then, 
you know, in the 90s, you probably spent most of your time doing data collection and writing reports and copying and pasting. And no, so now that a lot of those features have gone away, I can see why there'd be some fear and uncertainty of, well, what am I going to do now? But if you actually say like, okay, by taking away some of these operational things, which I think the industry's done a good job of doing and touting and, and we're you know, still working on that in certain areas, but I think a lot of that heavy lifting has been done. Then all of a sudden you actually say, look, we're going to free you up for more thinking time and more analysis time. It's actually a pretty cool thing to be a part of. So you're right. In, you're talking to me right in my lane, right? With over 20 years in the space, uh, started in 1996. So through my career, the majority of my time was spent in operational considerations, not on the sure. tactical side. And the reason that Decipher was actually formed was Jamie Plunkett and myself, we recognized that there was an opportunity to do something to make researchers' lives easier. It was literally, that was the premise, right, of the business is let's make life easier as a researcher so we can spend less time on the operations, copying, pasting, or what have you, and more time on the actual analytics. But getting to your point, no matter how good a platform is at automating, at least in my experience, there was always some level of change, always some level of additional attention that needed to be paid. And then that time benefit is ultimately offset at a minimum or at the best case scenario by us being able to spend more time in the analytics. So, and, and then getting into the, the why also becomes really interesting, right? So like the understanding the meta layer of what's driving a good survey versus a bad survey or good outcome versus a bad outcome insight. You have so much data, you can actually become the spokesperson, right? But that takes time too. So that was the piece that I felt was, I think is important is that if, and, and, and I will say this, that, that the companies that have relied on the traditional like longitudinal surveys, Mm -hmm. to drive revenue, you know, at half a million dollar annual budgets, you know, they have been under attack and that has been a, a material disruption with, sure. uh, you know, automated platforms coming in and, and stealing that share for pennies on the dollar in some cases. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's been a lot, there's a lot of people that are upset about that transition, but I mean, you know, gosh, what is it? Darwin that said it's not the smartest or the fittest that survive. It's the, those that are more adaptable. Right. Yeah. And I certainly think that would proliferate across multiple industries. In fact, we might be a little slower than some other industries that, you know, have to do that. I mean, if you look at a, a 10 or 15 or 20 year time horizon, look at all the changes in maybe the financial industry from, you know, advertising. I mean, I'll date right. myself, uh, you know, if, uh, I'm in my mid 40s. Right. So I remember being in college and, and the, the roaring 90s and the stock market was booming and every other commercial was about you know, we can do twenty one ninety nine stock trading, you know, or we totally. can do your commissions on your stock trading. Now it's like, I saw an ad the other day and it's like literally commission-free trading, no minimums, just give us your money. It's, just, right, totally. it's pretty incredible. So uh, certainly we're not immune to those industry cycles. So. What is the biggest issue facing market researchers today? Yeah, what a great question. I think we touched on some of it, right? Just staying on top of technology and not in a way that the technology makes you freak out and, and change all the, the rudimentary science and the, and the different methodological information that researchers lean on. So not throwing that out. But I, th I think the biggest challenge would be really just keeping up with technology and trends and trying to keep pace with the consumer. You know, the consumer is very different. So like your, your point earlier about the Gen Z and the cell phone thing, it's not limited to them. I mean, I get on a plane and I'll look down the row and everybody from 70 to seven is on a device or a phone hunched over. So while maybe younger folks are having changes to their body as a result, we're all doing those same things. We're all 
voting with our wallet. We're all, you know, hooked to technology devices faster. So I guess I would just say like trying to keep abreast of how technology is going to change, not only insights, but whatever their core product is in a massive way. I mean, even if you have a sort of a mundane offering, like you make toothbrushes or you make paper towels or something like that, and you still need to do market research. Well, just as far as how your consumers buy, rate and review, that's going to change. And then if you are in a company that produces a technology-based product, I mean, keeping up with the tech, the delivery of that, and then also the research and insights behind that. I mean, I think that's just a lot. And that's going to be the biggest single thing for everybody to keep pace with. Hmm. I completely agree with that. You've been inside of this space and operated at the biggest companies, really, right, around. When you think about the people that are standout as successful for you, either on your team or inside of the industry at large, what do you see as the core values or the characteristics of these all-star employees? Yeah, that's a great one. You know, I think one of them is just being humble because even if you work for the best company with the best technology, you know, if you want to make sure that you are very just well aware of your role within that. And I think that the people and the customers and the folks on my team and other clients and buyers and everybody that we interact with, I really appreciate that quality. It just is disarming and it helps people kind of cut through the noise because the reality is that there is so much innovation around tech and around services. But at the end of the day, if you can't explain an idea, an idea simply, and easily, um, it, it can really um, translate to confusion to buyers and internal stakeholders. So I've always found that to be a, a really great trait for me personally. Um, and then, you know, thinking back to your example with Ron on, on those 50 calls, right? So it's one thing if you said, okay, every you know salesperson has to do these 50 calls, but how you do the calls matters too. And, and what I've found is that the people that uh, I enjoy working with the most that have helped our business grow so much are really the ones that are kind of self-motivated, whether it's sales, technology, operations, programming, any part of this quantitative piece that, that we sit in, people that kind of start their own engine every day and and don't, you know, and they, they spend more time anticipating than they do waiting for to be told for stuff. Those are my absolute favorite folks to work with. And really that that translates over to clients as well. I mean, people that are just thinking about like, Hey, you know, we launched this project. It's going. I'm looking at it. I wanted to test this over. I have these ideas. What do you think is so much better than saying, Hey, what's the latest on this? You know, give me an update. You know, so I just, I love, I'm addicted and I get fueled off being around self starters. So, self starters and humble. The humble thing kind of plays nicely into one of the points that you raised you know, which is like being willing to accept new or changes in the industry, right? So it isn't having the operating from a point of dogma of this is just the way it is. I'm always going to use a right. five point scale, never an 11 point scale or what have you, right? So it's, it, it, it has this like almost adaptability component to it that it unlocks if you employ that characteristic. So now for our last question, which has turned into probably my favorite, what is your personal motto? Yeah, so I can't take full credit. I, I have to say my wife helped instill this and we kind of use it as a couple and uh, it helps with personal life and professional life. And it, it's pretty simple, but it's more life is not really what happens. It's more about how you handle it. So mine would be, it's all about how you handle it. And so an example is, 
you know, you're stressed, you get to the airport, you know, you get there, your flight's delayed and they look at you and say, yeah, it's canceled. See ya. You know, it just sends this chill down your spine. But if it's a, I'm so sorry to tell you this happened. I booked you on the other flight and there's nothing I can do. Let me help you. And so weird example, but um, I really found that sort of adversity, success, failure, being hired, being fired, good, bad, all these things happen to you in life, but how you handle them is what really defines you. Uh, and so, of course, as a consumer, it's it's easy to walk through examples. But I think the same is true uh, for a business, just kind of how you roll with things and how you um, take change in adversity and what you do with it. Um, so that is mine, uh, how you handle it. It's all about how you handle it. My guest today has been Ted Pulsifer, CRO at MarketCube. Thank you, Ted, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you so much. It was an absolute honor. If you found value in this episode, I certainly did. Please take time, screen capture, share. As always, your five-star ratings help other people find this podcast. Have a great rest of your day.